I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. I see some unfamiliar faces this morning. If you're just joining us uh, today, the reason why we're looking at Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 this morning is because it's the next passage in our book of Genesis sermon series. So let me go ahead and read uh, Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of God and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, one of the ways that you love us is by giving us the book, your words to instruct us and teach us and hem us in and lead us in a straight path. And Father, we pray that, that you would do a great work in our hearts and minds through this particular passage. We pray that you would instruct us and that you would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It says in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Does anyone pass the test? The next verse, Psalm 14.3, says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And that is an apt description of the ancient world that we just read about in Genesis chapter 6. That world was engulfed in great wickedness and would soon be engulfed in a great flood. We must begin, of course, with the intermarriage debacle in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 sets the stage for the problem that is about to emerge when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. 
At the beginning, God had instructed Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that's what they did. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, Cain's descendants are traced out to the eighth generation from Adam. In Genesis chapter 5, Seth's descendants are traced out to the eleventh generation from Adam. And in, in those genealogies, there is a focus on sons. But it's evident that daughters were also born. Cain found a wife, Genesis 4.17. Lamech found two wives, Genesis 4.19. Lamech had a daughter named Naamah, Genesis 4.22. And in Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 to 30, we are told that each of the nine men identified from Adam to Lamech had other sons and daughters. So from the very beginning of man's multiplication upon the earth, daughters were born to them. And these daughters who would become wives and mothers were key to the ongoing multiplication process among humanity. However, the issue in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 isn't the mere fact that daughters were born to man, but that these daughters caught the eye of the sons of God. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are the sons of God? Frankly, I don't think it's all that complicated, although there are likely to be disagreements among us on an issue like this. And so let me be careful to publicly state that our fellowship with one another is not dependent on seeing eye to eye on the identity of the sons of God in verses 2 and 4, or on the identity of the Nephilim in verse 4. Jesus is our firm foundation. The gospel of grace is our center of gravity. South Paris Paris Baptist Church's capacity to flourish as faithful believers and bear good fruit is not anchored in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Understanding the Nephilim is not the missing key to a fruitful Christian life. However, this doesn't mean that Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is unimportant. This passage is important because it's part of holy Scripture. These four verses are breathed out by God for our good, and God intends us to be helped by this passage. If we rightly understand it, we will be edified. So let me give you four reasons why I believe that the sons of God is a reference to heavenly or angelic beings. Reason number one, in the context of verses one and two, it is doubtful that the phrase, the sons of God, refers to men. It is unremarkable that men should find women attractive and marry them. This is just normal. Further, the genealogies in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 make it clear that the male descendants are the sons of man. (laughs) Why now begin to refer to any of these male descendants as the sons of God? Instead, what seems obvious in verses 1 and 2 is that the author is drawing a contrast between man and the sons of God. Man began to multiply, and daughters were born to them, and within this unfolding 
multiplication. It is implicit that the men and the women were pairing off in marriage in order to bring about the multiplication. But as we move into verse 2, it seems that a contrast is drawn in that there were some persons other than manfolk who were gazing upon man's daughters. The, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This contrast suggests that something out of the norm is taking place. Another indication that something unusual is taking place has to do with the offspring. If all that is happening is ordinary men marrying ordinary women, then you would expect ordinary offspring, but out of the ordinary offspring is what apparently happens, right? The Nephilim, verse 4, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, are the product of these intermarriages. Something abnormal is taking place. Reason number two, the fact that the Lord's judgment upon man is proclaimed in the middle of these verses indicates that the Lord is displeased with what is happening in these verses. You, you can see verses 1 and 2, and then verse 4 continues the narrative with the Nephilim, but right in the middle is a word of judgment. But in the context of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, men marrying women and having children is not the sort of thing that would invite God's displeasure. The proclamation of judgment in the middle of the narrative suggests that something troubling is taking place. Reason number three, in the context of the Old Testament, the phrase, the sons of God, only occurs a handful of times. And elsewhere, it refers to heavenly or angelic beings. In Job chapters one and two, both chapters refer to a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That's in Job 1.6 and in chapter 2, verse 1. And what is clearly in view is an assembly of heavenly beings gathered together in the presence of the Lord. Heavenly beings are probably also in view in Job chapter 38, where the Lord tells Job that all the sons of God shouted for joy when the earth was being created by God. A similar phrase occurs in Daniel 3.25 when Nebuchadnezzar notices an unexpected fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar comments that the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, Daniel 3.25. In other words, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, the fourth man had the appearance of a heavenly being. And so since the phrase the sons of God, or a son of the gods, refers to heavenly beings elsewhere in the Old Testament, one would have to have a very good reason not to take it that way in Genesis chapter 6. Reason number four. On two occasions, the New Testament speaks about a grievous sin committed by angels in the distant past, and these passages are almost certainly referring to what happened in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, Peter is drawing, uh, he's drawing lessons from the Old Testament in order to instruct and encourage believers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, he refers to the preservation of Lot amid the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is from Genesis chapters 18 and 19. 
In 2 Peter 2 verse 5, he refers to the preservation of Noah amid the destruction of the entire world, which is from Genesis chapters 6 to 9. But right before referring to the ungodliness of the ancient world destroyed by the flood, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, refers to angelic sin. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Well, when did these angels sin? If Peter is referring to a known event recounted in Scripture, Genesis 6, 1-4 is the most likely referent. Jude refers to the same angelic sin that Peter does, but, Jude's at, but Jude adds an important detail that makes the reference to Genesis 6 more certain. The important detail that Jude adds is that both the angelic sin and the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah were characterized by unnatural sexual immorality. It says in Jude verses 6 and 7, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or different flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So now we know that the, the angelic sin involved sexual immorality and the desire for strange flesh. A man who shacks up with a woman, not his wife, is guilty of sexual immorality, but he is not guilty of unnatural desire because God created man and woman for sexual union. But if an angel shacks up with a woman, the angel is transgressing the God-appointed boundaries of angel kind and humankind. The combination of Peter's reference to angelic sin and placing it right before his discussion of judgment on the ancient world, which we learn about in Genesis 6-9, and Jude's reference to the same sin and describing it in terms of sexual immorality and unnatural desire makes it almost certain that Peter and Jude are referring to the events at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. For all of these reasons, we are on solid ground to conclude that in Genesis 6, 1-4, angelic beings cohabited with human women. These angelic beings are called sons of God. They were created by God. They had a privileged position of responsibility in God's heavenly court. They likely had been entrusted with certain responsibilities in the earthly realm. But instead of remaining within their God-appointed place, they abandoned it. They abandoned it. And by the way, that's what sin is, okay? Sin is abandoning your God-appointed place, abandoning your God-appointed sphere, your God-appointed responsibilities, and instead crossing the line in order to do your own thing. That's what sin is. These angelic beings saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This wasn't a mere observation of fact, nor was it a mere appreciation of aesthetics, but it ultimately took the form of sexual lust. Thus, these angelic beings proceeded to take as their wives any they chose. Now, moving to verse 4, we'll come back to verse 3. 
In verse 4, these angelic human unions produced offspring called Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Further, these Nephilim continued to live upon the earth after the angelic human unions had taken place. It says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth not only in those days, but also afterward. These Nephilim offspring were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It's not surprising, really, that angelic human unions would produce a crop of elite, mighty, powerful, intelligent, and famous men, men of great ability who accomplished spectacular feats. But here's the question. The question we always need to ask is, what is God's perspective on what is happening? Verses 1, 2, and 4 tell us what happened in a matter-of-fact way. When the Bible tells us what happened, what we should be looking for is God's assessment of what happened. Is this good or evil? Praiseworthy or blameworthy? And the text leaves no doubt. In the midst of the narrative of verses 1 to 4, we hear the Lord speak a word of judgment upon mankind. Of course, I already referred to passages in 2 Peter and Jude in which the Lord judged with great severity the angels who were involved in this sin, but the Bible's main concern is not the Lord's judgment upon angels. We, we are not angels. The Bible's main concern is the Lord's judgment upon mankind, upon people like us. And mankind is not an innocent victim, in, an innocent victim of angelic activity. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve, instead of holding fast to God's Word, were led astray by the serpent in Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain's heart was captured by the evil one, that same serpent. And frankly, one of the lessons of chapters 4 to 6 in Genesis is that once human beings walk away from the presence of the Lord, we are, we are vulnerable to increasing levels of wickedness. When human beings are not living within the protective sphere of God's gracious word, then they are at risk of consorting with fallen angels. A good man would do everything in his power to protect his daughters from rebellious angels, don't you think? The problem, of course, is that most men weren't up to the task. Just think of Cain's descendant Lamech back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 18 to 24. Lamech had a daughter named Naamah in Genesis 4.22. The name Naamah means pleasant. Let's assume that Naamah was, in fact, pleasant, just like so many of the daughters of man were attractive and pleasant in Genesis 6, 2. I have no idea if Lamech's daughter is one of the women who entered into marriage with a rebellious angel. The only point I want to make is that Lamech was not the sort of man about whom we could have confidence that he would protect his daughter. I mean, Lamech himself had corrupted God's design for marriage by taking two wives. And Lamech was a proud and violent blasphemer. The Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
and give no opportunity to the devil. But Lamech wasn't the sort of man who put away anger. The devil had a foothold in Lamech. And so don't be fooled. The sin of Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 happened because other sins were already happening and flourishing among mankind. When you turn away from God as your refuge, what you get is a howling wilderness of predators and evil spirits. Now in the midst of the moral shipwreck, the Lord speaks in verse 3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The word translated abide in the English Standard Version is sometimes translated contend or strive, as in my spirit shall not contend with or strive with man forever. There is uncertainty as to the root meaning of this Hebrew word, thus you have these two proposed meanings, both of which are sensible, but I'm simply going to work off of the way that it's rendered in the English Standard Version, which makes good sense in the context of Genesis 2-7. to Man's life, even his physical life, depends on God's spirit, which can also be translated God's breath, the breath of life. The breath of life is God's gift to mankind and to every living creature upon the earth. Psalm 104 says, when you send forth your spirit or breath, they, the earth creatures, are created. Psalm 104.30. But when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Psalm 104.29. God's life giving and life-sustaining spirit is the reason that human beings as well as animals are alive in the first place and the reason that they continue to live. The statement, my spirit shall not abide in man forever points forward to a day of judgment when the Lord is going to withdraw his life-sustaining spirit from mankind. I mean, it's one thing for the breath of God to to, to, to uh, abide in a physical creature when that physical creature is dignified and godly and morally upright the way that Adam was supposed to be. But it is another thing for the breath of God to abide in corrupted flesh. Several verses later we read in Genesis 6.12 that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And even here in Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4, women had entered corrupt one flesh unions with angels. So the marital union was corrupted and the offspring were corrupted. And so God is saying the day is going to come when I'm going to withdraw my spirit and all flesh will perish and the world will be cleansed of all this wickedness. When? When was this going to take place? In 120 years. His days shall be 120 years. The chronology of Genesis uh, chapters 5 to 7 shows that the flood judgment began in the year 1656. That is 1656 years after the creation of the world, which means that the Lord spoke forth this word of judgment in the year 1000. 536. You've got 120 years, people. Now, as we turn our attention to verses 5 to 7, we come to realize that the sin in verses 1 to 4 was not one blemish in an otherwise beautiful world. Oh no. 
Instead, the sin of verses 1 to 4 is one blemish in a world full of corruption. And one of the principles we learn in Scripture is that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, right? 1 Samuel 16, 7. If a mere man, if, if a mere sinful man were to look on the outward appearance of the ancient world described in verses 1 to 4, what would he see? Three things. Beauty, strength, and transcendence. Yay! The beauty is typified in the daughters of man, verse 2. The strength is typified in the mighty men who were of old, verse 4. The transcendence is typified in man's daughters mingling with princes from the heavenly court. And what you and I need to understand is that man loves to make much of this kind of world, a world of beauty, strength, and transcendence. The ancient Greek mythologies and modern-day superhero comics are very much at home in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. A world of heavenly princes, earthly beauties, apparent demigods, and spectacular feats. The rather boring secular version of all this is our raw preoccupation with sex, power, and money, along with our pathetic attempts to bring justice to our troubled world. But true justice can only happen if there is an accurate assessment of what's wrong with the world. And while sinners are very much at home in the world of Genesis 6, 1-4, God abhors it. God sees through the outward shell to the inward reality. He sees through the cultural forms to the moral foundations. He sees through the media headlines to the heart of every human being. And what does he see? Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The most important thing about us is what is going on in the depths of our heart. What ought to be coming out of our hearts is an ocean of thoughts that are directed upward in love for the Lord and outward in love for other people. Such an ocean of thoughts would bear fruit in good conduct and healthy communities. When the heart is right, what gets produced is visible righteousness, peaceful relationships, wholesome words, and praiseworthy deeds. But for all the beauty, strength, and transcendence that was prized in verses 1 to 4, what God saw was visible wickedness in every direction. And that visible wickedness was rooted in wayward hearts. Every intention of the thoughts, of man's heart was only evil continually. Every single day when people woke up and started to have thoughts, bad things started happening. Their thoughts were immediately and consistently aimed in the wrong direction. They had ungodly, selfish, cruel, envious, angry, vile, and destructive thoughts. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 teaches us that a world awash in sexual immorality Romans 1, 24-27, will always give way to complete moral chaos. Romans 8, 28-31. Since the Lord delights in righteousness and abominates wickedness, we can understand what follows in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. A world without man at all is better than a world full of man's wickedness. 
So as the Lord saw a world full of man's wickedness, he wished that the whole thing had never gotten off the ground in the first place. Now, the purpose of verse 6 is not to tell us the whole story of how God viewed his decision to make mankind. We know from other scriptural passages that the Lord knows the end from the beginning, that he's working out all things according to the counsel of his own will, that Jesus the Messiah is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that God's plan from the very beginning was to bring about a redeemed community of human beings from all over the world together, and, that, and God knew that he was going to succeed at carrying out his plan. So verse 6 must be interpreted within this larger framework, and when we interpret verse 6 within this larger framework, then what it teaches us is that God delights in what is holy and wholesome. Our God is not a God who delights in the mere existence of human beings as if our mere existence makes him happy. No. From everlasting to everlasting, God has infinite joy in the blessedness and holiness and righteousness of His Trinitarian fellowship. God created human beings to share in His blessedness, in His holiness, in His righteousness. God delights to see human beings of good character, men and women who reflect His character, who demonstrate faithfulness and steadfast love, and who use their minds and resources to serve one another and build faithful community. God delights in that, makes him happy. But when God looked upon this ancient world, he saw people everywhere who had rejected their call to share in the likeness of God, who had abandoned their responsibility to walk with him, who had turned away from the fountain of living water, and he was grieved in his heart. Then he looked, thus he looked upon the ancient world and wished that it had never arisen in the first place, but since it did arise... Now, he would erase it. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Although man is the guilty party, the animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens were under man's charge, as we learn from Genesis 1. So the idea here is that God is going to wipe out man, and man's world, the withdrawal of God's Spirit from man as promised in verse 3, and the blotting out of man as promised in verse 7, are referring to the same act of judgment, and that's exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 7 through, through the flood judgment. And yet, moving now to verse 8, in the corrupt and dark world of Genesis 6, 1-7, there was one man upon the earth who found favor in the sight of the Lord. And the text has prepared us for this moment. Go back to verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. But so what? So what if you are favored by heavenly princes who are in high-handed revolt against the Lord? The Nephilim, verse 4, were men of renown, which means that they were seen as memorable and important on the world stage, but so what if you are remembered and written about, written about and mythologized only to hear the terrible words, I never knew you, spoken by the Lord at the final judgment. 
And then in verse 5, the Lord saw. See, there's seeing going on. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The Lord sees things the way they really are, and no one can hide. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What hope can any sinner have? Only this, that the same eyes that stare down a wicked world would look upon you with grace. But Noah found favor, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not a sinless man, of course, but by the Lord's grace, Noah had learned to humbly trust God. Psalm 33 tells us that the Lord looks down from heaven He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. That's just what the Lord is doing in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And the Lord sees that everyone is a wretched mess, but the Lord breaks out in a smile over Noah. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine or through a flood. Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19. The Lord breaks out in a smile over some of you, too, to anyone who is humbly trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, I want to leave you with some takeaways. There's nine of them, but I'm going to be brief. So don't think that, wow, we're just getting started here. Um, Most most of these takeaways are self-explanatory from the text, but I, I want to call attention to them and just make some very brief comments, okay? Takeaway number one, trust God's word even if it doesn't make sense to your finite mind. There are things in verses one to four that are hard to wrap your mind around. Listen, there are many things in the Bible that are hard to wrap your mind around. There are many things that I believe for one reason and one reason only. The Bible says it. The Bible says it. I believe it. Takeaway number two, don't speculate beyond what is written. Much ink has been spilled in the ancient world and in the modern world about unpacking uh, uh, these verses. You can find a lot of written material outside of the Bible that give conjecture or speculation about what's happening here. But what we need to know and what we need to bank on is what God has seen fit to tell us. This, this, is, this is my only authoritative source in the universe. And I'm going to stand on it. But I'm not, I don't want to go beyond what is written and give way to all kinds of speculation and conjecture about things that God didn't tell us about. I don't know about the I don't know about the mechanics of angels and humans producing offspring. I don't know about the 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 hybrid nature of these Nephilim. I don't know. I don't need to know. God, God hasn't unpacked it for us in detail. So trust him. Takeaway number three realize that what happens on earth is part of a cosmic spiritual battle. That's a continual theme. In Genesis 3, it's the serpent. In Genesis 4, Cain gets captured by the evil one. Abel, the righteous worshiper, gets killed. And now, 
All kinds of marital unions and, and, and offspring are corrupted. Satan and his minions are after corrupting humanity. And if he can't do it this way, he'll do it that way. Stay close to Jesus because outside of Jesus, it really is a wilderness of predators and evil spirits. Takeaway number four, learn to see things from God's perspective. The world is busy boasting in wisdom, might, and riches. But the Lord says, don't do that. The Lord says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Become the kind of person who delights in what God delights in. Takeaway number five, be sobered by the knowledge that God hates wickedness and judges the wicked. Th th these judgments that we see in various parts of the Bible, they are previews of the final judgment when everyone will stand before the Lord. And if you haven't addressed your sin through the grace of God, then you're in real trouble. Takeaway number six, give thanks to God that there is much more spiritual light shining into our 21st century world than was shining in the dark days before the flood. I mean, my point isn't that sinners today aren't as bad as sinners then. My point is, is that there's a lot of people on the earth who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Be thankful. They've built families They've had influence on nations. They've built institutions. They've published books. There's light shining into this dark world. Many may yet be saved. Give thanks. God has put you here at this time. Rejoice in it. Takeaway number seven. Take to heart that the condition of your heart is the most important thing about you. We're not into checklists, rules, managing your appearance. God sees through all of that. He wants hearts that are His. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro the out, throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. If your heart is His, He knows, and He's with you. And if your heart is far away from Him, He knows no matter what you're pretending. Num takeaway number eight, don't make excuses for yourself. It's possible to walk with God in a spiritually dark world. Noah did. Enoch did. So can you. God has given you his word. He's shown you the grace of his gospel. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his people. You're not a, you're not a, helpless victim. You can hold fast to the Lord. You can link arms with one another and you can walk together after the Lord and you can shine brightly for Him. Don't let Satan blow it out. Takeaway number nine. Be restless until you know that you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord or marvel if you know that you have already found it. I mean, Nothing is more important than this. You are either under the wrath of God 
or you are under the favor of God. There, there's no other alternative. There's no, there's no middle position. St. Augustine said, the heart is restless until the heart finds rest in Him. So be restless until you have found the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you've already found it, then take words like this upon your lips. Someone wrote, I am not worthy the least of His favor, but Jesus left heaven for me. The Word became flesh, and He died as my Savior, forsaken on dark Calvary. I am not worthy the least of His favor, but in the Beloved I stand. Now I'm an heir with my wonderful Savior, and all things are mine at His hand. I am not worthy the least of His favor, but He is preparing a place where I shall dwell with my glorified Savior forever to look on His face. I am not worthy, this dull tongue repeats it, I am not worthy, this heart gladly beats it, Jesus left heaven to die in my place. What mercy, what love, and what grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so have some of you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that we would not walk away from this passage troubled by anything that we don't understand. I pray that we would walk away from this passage edified and strengthened by what we do understand, what is clearly taught in this passage, your righteousness, your judgment, and yet your grace. And Father, I pray that you would work mightily in the hearts of all your people, those who belong to you, I pray that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are on the outside, I pray that your gospel would pierce their hearts even today and that you would draw them into your family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.